Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. If you've done it long enough, you've got a good shot at identifying jurors, but the thing you'll never figure out is how they react to each other. And that and that's the beauty of it to me, just the group dynamics. And that's why I love focus groups and mock trials so much. It scares me. I look through that one-way mirror and I say, man, I should have been a truck driver. What am I doing? This is insane. But at the end of the day, it's what it's all about. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to another episode of the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Steve Lowry, here with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's a beautiful day here today. I don't know when this will I don't know when this will actually air, but I think this is the nicest day all year that we're having right now. Yeah, it actually started out a little bit cool down here in Savannah, which is uh, good for us. And uh, I'm sure within a week or two, it's going to be sweltering hot and then we'll be dealing with that for the rest of the summer. <laughs> right. Um, I, I was going to say, Yvonne, I, uh, I, I want to tell our listeners that uh, we just recently did our firm photographs. And so I was looking through them today and I remember that when they were taking the lawyer's photographs, uh, the photographer kept telling Yvonne to own her space. And, uh, and, uh, and I didn't look at you because you were in back of me. And so I didn't see what you were doing. But, uh, but now that I've looked at the photos, I got to say, I'm really impressed with how you owned your space. You uh, had the hands on the hips with your leg out, sort of like, this is my area. Yeah, he was trying to coach me into that sort of power stance. And the same photographer has taken our picture before and, and made me do what he called the CEO pose, the sort of arm folded lean sort of it's not really my natural stance but um i don't I know you look, you look good <laughs> you you look good and i think that's what you should always do yvonne so I, I think that's your i think you've got your new pose from now on yeah i'll, exactly. I'll start practicing grocery store anywhere <laughs> right, <yeah>. anywhere i am <laughs> Well, uh, well, Vaughn, I um, uh, wanted to introduce our guest today. We've got a, a fantastic guest, a great lawyer from uh, Miami. I should say, I say Miami, Florida. I think you're, at, you're actually in Coral Gables, Michael, but we've got uh, Michael Haggard from the Haggard Law Firm, and you can look up Michael at haggardlawfirm.com. That's H-A-G-G-A-R-D lawfirm.com. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. Well, um, well, Michael, I, I want to go ahead and, and uh, introduce you to our listeners. Um, you've obviously been practicing for a, a, a little bit and had just a, a, a fantastic career. And, um, and so I'm going to give everybody a little uh, background on you. So Michael is the managing partner of the Haggard Law Firm, uh, where he uh, practices with his father, Andy. Is that right? That's right. And, uh, and, and Michael uh, has um, ha had... A great career. One, one of the things I noticed is that when you uh, started out, Michael, you started out as a public defender. And uh, I had an opportunity when I was in law school to work with the Federal Public Defender's Office. And, uh, and I always say this, that the, the public defenders are always some of the, uh, I mean, smartest and just most committed lawyers to really just the the uh, the system and to doing a, a great job. And so I, I've always, and, and it's, it's sort of a thankless job. Uh, because, you know, basically you're taking on, you know, all these criminal cases, you don't really get to choose your clients at all. And, uh, and they're a lot of times they're very, very tough cases, but you have uh, great lawyers that are that are really working their best and I should say working their best for not much, uh, not much compensation. No, it was a great experience. I actually got the opportunity 
to uh, do what we call a clinical at a law school. And so I went over there my spring semester of law school and got to try eight jury trials so much I was missing class where I, I went to my <laughs> bankruptcy professor and I said, I, I can't make class in the afternoon because I've been in jury trials every every week. And the professor asked me, you promised me you'll never do bankruptcy law. And I said, I can <laughs> promise you I will never do it. And as long as I brought my verdict forms in, uh, they let me take the exam, pass, fail. And I think they did more than that because there's no way I passed that exam. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Well, well Michael, since, since starting your, uh, or not starting, but joining your uh, your father and your law firm, uh, you've had a number of trials. And I, I should say that Michael uh, tri- has had three separate cases of over a $100 million verdicts, uh, which is, you know, to get one in a career is amazing. To, to have three uh, is more amazing. And, um, and you've had a number of other great verdicts. Uh, and uh, two of those verdicts uh, that were that uh, were in drowning cases or in near drowning cases, and one and that's going to be one of the cases we're talking about today. Uh, but Michael has also uh, been chosen as the Lawyer of the Year by Best Lawyers of America. That was just last year in 2018. He was also given the prestigious Perry Nichols Award from the Florida Justice Association. Uh, he is uh, on the uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving Barristers Council. Uh, he's been chosen as a lifetime member of the America's Top 100 Lawyers. Uh, Michael's been the president of uh, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the Florida Justice Association, and uh, and is involved in a number of other areas. And I should uh, mention that you are also on the board of the Polycystic Kidney uh, Foundation, which is a, a great charitable organization that does a lot of uh, really great uh, work. So, uh, so Michael, uh, thank you for coming on to the show. No, excited to talk to you guys about all this stuff. Thank you. So the case that we're talking about today, Michael, is a case called Hinton versus 2331 Adam Street Corporation. And, uh, and this case was tried back in uh, 2003 uh, and, you know, just really involves uh, uh, what I would call every parent's nightmare. Um, your clients, the uh, Hintons, were living at an apartment complex called the Tropasun Apartments down uh, in the Miami area. They had a uh, two-year-old, a two-year-old and ten-month, two, two years and ten-month-old uh, Lauren, um, uh, which I think her uh, nickname was Tookie, and uh, and then also had a, an older um, child that was six years old. And basically, uh, their mother Lori, who was a bus driver, had brought them home to the uh, apartments. And um, I should mention that this apartment complex was a completely gated area. And so it was known that everybody uh, could sort of, all the kids could just sort of run around and play. And, um, and uh, Lonnie, the father, was uh, setting up a barbecue. There was a number, of, um, a number of neighbors there and about 10 or so kids playing hide and go seek. And Lonnie went upstairs to... Um, do something with the, the barbecue, and uh, while he was up there with his wife, uh, heard a scream, uh, came downstairs to find uh, that a neighbor had pulled his daughter, Lauren, out of the swimming pool uh, where she and was doing CPR on her. Uh, she almost drowned. She was uh, uh, resuscitated by the EMTs, uh, but was 
just catastrophically injured. Uh, basically, uh, sounds like, Michael, that she was trapped in her body as far as she was alert as to what was going on around her, but uh, really had no uh, function. And, um, and this was all because of a, a gate to the pool that, um, you know, was supposed to be self-closing and self-latching, but had been broken. Uh, it was known by the apartment complex that it had been broken. It, there had been a number of complaints to the apartment complex, uh, and they hadn't fixed it, or at least hadn't fixed it in a, in a way that uh, would protect uh, children from getting to the pool area, and that's how this tragedy happened. Uh, and I should say that the verdict in the case, and we're going to go through the verdict form because it was broken down, but the verdict from what I see was a total of $100,750,000 for the um, injuries uh, to Lauren um, and uh, just a tremendous result. And I should note that the that, that verdict didn't include any amount for punitive damages. That's uh, a, an entirely compensatory uh, damages verdict. So obviously that's uh, a tremendous work, Michael, in what is just a, a real tragic case. Well, it, it, it was incredibly tragic, and Lauren is, is still alive today. She lives up near you in Atlanta, Georgia, Steve, and uh, she's going to turn 21 later this year. And uh, she, thank, thank goodness for this jury and our process, she was able to get top-flight medical care to take care of her the rest of her life. But it doesn't change the fact that she really had her life and all her life's experience taken from her on that day and uh, May 15th, a long time ago. And, um, you know, what's really scary is that this type of incident can occur just as easy today. You know, we've, we've made a lot of strides. One thing that I really try to do in my cases is, you know, what, what can we do about changing this behavior? We might have won this case and we've fairly compensated this particular client. Uh, and we've, you know, hopefully this defendant has learned a lesson. But what about that particular industry and have we made that industry safer and have we made it safer for kids? And we've gone about working with the National Drowning Prevention Alliance and, and different organizations throughout the country and passed some laws throughout the states. But you know, the problem now nowadays is that pools are more available to uh, everybody than they've ever been before. And right. uh, you know, this kind of case, as I think about the laws have changed. The first thing that pops out of my mind in 2019 is BRBOs. Right. You know, when you think about, you know, like if we've changed apartment complex gates and we've helped hotels, well, now everybody's staying in everybody's home. And, and what, what, what's regulating that? And I think that's what's important about all these types of cases is how are we changing behavior so that something as tragic as what happened to Lauren? I mean, I'll never forget the first time I, I met her. You know, it was days after the family had called me, I handled a number of drowning cases and someone had recommended me to them. Going into that hospital room and seeing her tied to those tubes and talking to those doctors outside the presence of uh, her parents that she would never, ever, ever eat on her own, walk on her own, speak again. Uh, just, just you, you can't imagine uh, that type of profound injury to a child. And uh, so it, it certainly was about as tragic as you can think of. It's so, it's so heartbreaking. And, and bef I, before, I, I will probably talk about it a little bit 
more later, but just in reading the, even reading the transcript of your opening, this is the first time that this has happened to me. I actually, I started crying because yeah. I think you did such a great job explaining in these concrete ways, you know, you know, talking about how she'll never have her first kiss. I mean, I just started <laughs> immediately crying because it is, it's so, it's, it's just so tragic. But to me, that was such a poignant il illustration of something that everyone thinks about sort of, you know, growing up and remembers that, that she would never have. And it was just this one specific thing that, that didn't talk about all of her physical limitations and everything else. But um, I don't know, just really drove the point across. So, so con congrats for make, making me cry through the right. transcript of your opening. Well, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry about that, but I'll tell you, you know, one thing that, you know, that, that is a, it's a blessing of being a trial lawyer and it's a curse of being a trial lawyer is you can't separate your own life from your cases. Right. And, and at least I can't. And um, so I tried this case in January of 2003 and, uh, and my daughter was born September 21st of 2001. So my Maddie was a year and four months when I tried this case for Lauren. And I can tell you, uh, I mean, the night I got, or the Sunday night before I gave my opening, uh, I didn't keep it together very well. Wow. Uh, I, when I kissed my daughter, I, mean, I, I, I just looked at her that night. And so not only do you think about, you know, this could be your own child, but then you think about the pressure of, I have to win this case for Lauren. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. I can't, you know, I'm now her, I'm as important to her as I am to my own daughter. And, and, and that, that's why I say that's the, the blessing because it gives you, to me, it gives you an incredible amount of, of passion, power, you know, anything you can do, but the, the curse is it's a lot of weight. And uh, you, and so I always tell lawyers, boy, if you take a case on like this, you, you better be able to put everything you have into it mm -hmm. because Someone's counting on you very much. This episode of the Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials Podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Yeah, that's right. And it's like we always say to, to juries, and I saw you say, said the same thing. I mean, when you go in front of a jury and, and you know, you're presenting 
this case for this child that's going to affect the rest of her life uh i mean this is her one and only shot it's not like she gets to come back and you know if they don't award enough money or don't do the right thing that she gets to come back and ask for it to be done again i mean so it, it is a tremendous amount of pressure and it's a um uh, I, I have the same feelings you do. I have, uh, I have two daughters. And so it, it makes me every time I, you know, I represent a child or a child that's been, you know, um, catastrophically injured. It, you can't help but think about your, your own children in that same spot. Yeah, no, no question about it. And, uh, you know, you mentioned some of the other cases I've tried drain entrapment cases where the drains are missing and I'll be outside and walking around doing my, Wadire practicing, you know, crazy questions and answers that I think might come up. Look down at my pool and my, my drain cover's missing. Right. Oh, and, man. you know, you know, and you're sitting there and the whole time the defense is saying, well, this can't happen. And, yeah, you know, there's all those life experiences that occur to you and, uh, you know, while you're in trial. And, and that's what's great about it. You know, you all, you know, as much as you feel the pressure, you say, okay, well, who else, you know, who else would you want? If you have the confidence, ability in yourself, you want to be in that arena and, and you know, and, and uh, fighting for her and, and fighting for that family and, and fighting against, I'm sure we'll talk about it, fighting against some misnomers that, you know, that, uh, that they tried as a defense in this case, which they do in all drowning cases, which is simply blame the parents. Right. And uh, fighting that because, you know, you know, as well as anybody else that you've been around the greatest parents in the world. And they've said to you, have you seen Johnny? Right. And in that instance, they're not a bad parent. They're not a bad person. It's just, as we all know, have kids, they can happen like that, that your child is out of your sight for a split second. That's all it takes. No, it's, it's funny you say, it cause I was actually thinking about this when I was reading your, reading your opening is uh, when my daughter, my younger daughter was about two, we had a, we had a pool and we had a safety fence around it and we were very strict about keeping it closed. Uh, but one day, and I can't remember why, but we just had it open and it literally felt like we had it open for a minute. And, um, and I, you know, walked out and saw my two year old leaning over the deep end of the pool and, uh, you know, I immediately ran over and grabbed her, but it's just how things can, can happen so quickly. Uh, and so, uh, and, and so, you know, it's, uh, it's very scary. And like I said, I mean, it's every, th this case when you, you think your children are out playing hide-and-go-seek, doing, you know, one of the things that we all have a great memory of as a, as a child to know uh, that it ended in tragedy. I mean, it's, this is just, um, uh, it, it is every parent's nightmare. And that, and that was one of you know, the major, we, we obviously, we focus group all our cases. In any case that's going to trial, uh, we, we have a rule that we mock try it, we focus group it. And obviously this issue we had focus grouped early on, which was, you know, we, as you mentioned, we had the notice, uh, they knew they had a bad gate. We had a code violation. We had all those types of things on traditional negligence. Um, but we, have, you, you had a situation where the, the child was out of the site of the parents for several minutes. So we, we focus grouped that. And, and, and what we learned is we really needed jurors who, you know, ironically had kids. Right. You have, you be, because someone who doesn't have a kid yet does not understand. And they and and then you had to find the parent who you know really just didn't think they were perfect. And right. uh, so, so we went through all these scenarios. I'll never forget in jury selection, one of the prospective jurors said, I watch my kid 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My child is always with my sight. 
There's no excuse. And she had really put it out there. So it was kind of like a bellwether moment. Before we could ask a follow-up, one of the jurors said, well, where's your child now? Right. Exactly. <laughs> and the whole, you know, and so everybody, in the, kind of like you guys, everybody in the juror box said, yeah, exactly. Like, we, yeah, we understand we're in court, but, but the fact is, you just said you watch them 24-7, and we don't. And, and it was a great debate, and obviously those two didn't serve on the jury, but, but watching how the rest of the 28 or so reacted to that was very telling. And uh, so we, we could talk about jury deliberations later because we had a lengthy talk with the foreperson after the trial, but um, it, proved to be, it, it proved to be something very, very important. And it, it's interesting, on the um, percentage breakdown in the verdict form, if, if you notice, it's 99% on the defendant, 1% on the father who was in right. charge of care. And uh, just to, to skip ahead, the way that broke down was we had a, a young man on the jury, jury was 18. And he came in, I'll never forget, he came in the jury selection with his hat on backwards. So the judge obviously let him have it. Um, when they go through the jury questionnaire, they ask, how many kids do you have? And his answer was, none that I know of. Yeah. So he was a he was a pretty you know kind of brash eighteen year old, but there's one thing he and I went against my rule of having folks that had kids on the jury is he he really you know kind of said he would stay to his convictions and he gave us some other good answers and I really liked him and my jury consultant at the time was like D -d -d he don't get him because he won't understand damages and I was the youngest lawyer in the courtroom. And so I just felt like I had a bomb with him. And so I kept him. He almost got thrown off the jury because he was late one day. Um, but what was interesting is after the verdict, the four-person called us the next day. And, and I, I just said, like, what's up with the 99 to 1? She said, oh, that's very interesting. We had a juror on there that wanted it to be 50-50. And she goes, and the young man folded his arms and said, let me tell you, I don't have a job. I got nowhere to go. Like that dad didn't do anything wrong, and I'll sit here for six months until it's zero. So wow. he obviously compromised at some point to one percent. But yeah. it was it was I learned a lot from that. That sometimes you, if you feel that bond, and and you know, you know, someone might stay with their convictions. It was a little unorthodox, but it worked out well. Wow. Yeah, and you got to just uh, you know. Uh, Find him and, and go thank him for uh, for staying strong for your clients. I mean, because that is um, that, that that's great. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was, it was it was interesting. Well, let's start out with talking about because you know the, the, I, I you know obviously the defense in this case the the majority of the defense in this case is going to be blaming the parents and uh, and I read the the defendant's opening and and I thought they did a, a pretty good job of you know you know, saying that your clients were nice people, but at the same time, they made a bad decision uh, that, that they also knew that this, you know, gate was broken and wasn't just the, um, wasn't just the apartment complex. Um, but um, tell, talk to us a little bit about how you uh, overcame that and how you, you know, uh, went about um, addressing, you know, the fact that, uh, that, you know, there was going to be at least some people, you know, wanting to put some amount of blame on, on your clients. And then I guess the other second part of that question is, did you ever think about having your clients, um, take some responsibility on the stand and, and, and did they do that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think first thing when you deal with, and, and we, we don't have it limited to drowning cases and parental supervision, but when you deal with overall comparative negligence, you know, the, the one thing is that the story, you've you really got to live in the most plausible story that you can and, and the most obviously um, with the most credibility. And what happened here simply was, like you said, the kids are playing hide-and-go-seek. Lonnie was down cooking on the community grill at the apartment complex, cooking burgers and stuff, and, and he's got his kids. Yeah, they're all playing around. So at some point, he's got to take up the food to, to the apartment, which is on the second floor. So he turned to the group of other parents and said, hey, do you got them? Do you got the kids? And he took them up. So, you know, that to us was a reasonable thing to do. You, right. You've got other people watching. Um, what was unique to Florida law is you can't, you can't blame someone unless you have a particular person. You can't blame an a unidentified person, unidentified group, unless you can specifically identify them. So they, it wasn't like he turned them over to a babysitter. So from a legal perspective, they really kind of had to blame him, uh, not like another babysitter uh, that didn't watch. So he wasn't up long. He didn't do anything unreasonable. Uh, but obviously the defense is all about personal accountability. I mean, these are your children. You have responsibility and those types of things. So the way that we deal with comparative all the time, and you, you probably saw my dad's rebuttal, which was that comparative negligence is just that you compare. So right. you do a comparison chart. You talk about they broke the law. They broke the city of Hollywood code. They broke every volunteer organization in the world about self-closing, self-watching gates. They broke every violation of having toys at the pool with that kitty slide. They um, knew about it. They didn't fix it. It was that that gate would get stuck in the cement. It had the cement marks. So you had all this building of negligence upon negligence upon negligence versus someone saying, hey, you got them. I'm taking the food up real quick. So right. how do you compare those two? And, and so that's how we really deal with comparative all the time. I mean, you know, I just had a, a uh, medical malpractice case that we tried against a cruise line where they were trying to blame the patient for a lot of different things. And so we did the same thing. You know, here's the doctor. The doctor's you know, knowledge, the doctor's expertise in this particular field, and, and just stacking up those different things against what did the patient know, and um, and so I think once you do all once you do all that, you know, and you really talk about at the end of the day here. I mean, what I what I talk about pool fences when I try these cases is there's only one reason in the world for a pool fence. There is only right. one in the world, and that's because. Kids are going to get outside the supervision of their parent at some point in time. Right. It's going to happen. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist. You would never have seen a pool fence in the history of the world, but for the fact that a kid's going to get away from their parent for one set for one second or two. And um, so that that's really how we tried to frame that. And I'll tell you, an interesting discussion was with our liability expert because you know we had them on all the different violations so why call an expert who is going to be up there and take the brunt on but it's the parents fault and it's the parents fault and you you wouldn't advocate uh parents not watching their child you wouldn't advocate just hey there's fences so you're good to go go have fun johnny roam around the neighborhood and uh, we we went with calling him because he could explain it so well that that's why you have layers of protection that's why every state the CDC, the Consumer Product Safety 
Commission, the Red Cross, when you name the association as the same exact standard for the same type of fence, same type of gate, same type of self-latching and self-closing gate handle, and that's why you have it, because these things inevitably will happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> well, and, and I saw that part of their argument, uh, in addition to, to trying to blame your clients, was sort of this argument of, well, uh, the manager tried to fix this gate a number of times, but we had all these other kids in the neighborhood who would basically vandalize the gate, and so basically they kept, uh, kept breaking it. And, uh, and so, you know, what do you expect us to do? We, you know, kept trying to fix it, which, which you know, I saw that it, you know, the fixing they did looks like it was, you know, sort of just temporary fixes, never really tried to fix the problem. But um, how did that argument uh, uh, go over at trial and, uh, and, and how did y'all address that? You know, it's, it's unfortunately it's a typical argument that you see from property owners and apartment complex owners where, you know, we handle a lot of negligent security cases. So it's always, well, people you know, do this to the front gate. They do this to whatever. Well, then get out of the real estate management. I mean, you can't handle it. Right. But the darn, the, the, you better secure your pool because, as we all know, uh, people die in pools. People get severely injured in pools. It would be the same thing if somebody's stealing the fire extinguishers or the or the breaking the fire suppression system. You better deal with that. And, uh, you know, they didn't have a single security camera on the proper the property they didn't have you know patrols so it was really just just another excuse um and their manager is as you probably saw was not the best uh, in the world and you know and the good the, the good thing about being a a victim's lawyer is that you know we get to interview and pick our clients uh defense lawyers don't right uh, they, they 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 were um you know they were wed to frank the property manager who didn't do anything had a million complaints as to that gate. You know, if they wanted to fix it so well, they would have removed that kitty slide, uh, you know, which is, it's amazing how there's been so much studies on drowning and near drowning and child drownings in particular. And one of the main things they talk about is you can't have kids' toys in there because it's attractive to kids. And so if they really wanted to fix it, they would have known about that and they would have simply had that slide out of there. But they had no interest in fixing it. They were shoddy and and uh, so that's how we dealt dealt with that defense. So I was also confused. I, I noticed in there, I think it was the opening, that the defense seemed to sort of bring up that, you know, I guess that the owners of this complex um, lived abroad and so that they were sort of trusting this this property manager and that the property manager, that there'd be testimony that the property manager hadn't told them about what was going on. And I was sort of curious. I mean, my understanding was that they were still going to end up being on the hook for the property manager's negligence. So I was kind of confused why they did that or what the strategy was there and, and how well it worked. Because to me, it just made them look even worse. <laughs> yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the they're absolutely responsible for their agents. So there's no question that their property manager is their agent. I think the reason they did that was they just you know, they, they almost didn't want to look callous. Like, why wouldn't they have fixed this? It's so cheap while they're out of the country. The, I mean, but your guess is good as mine. I mean, yeah. and I'm sure we'll talk about the life expectancy defense. Sometimes, you know, defense lawyers try to throw everything at the wall and hope something sticks. And you got to be, you got to be real careful with a case like this, with these types of damages and, 
you know, just getting too cute. I mean, I'll give you an example. On the life care plan, you know, our life care plan was priced in South Florida. And uh, and it was it it was something it was mid thirty million to take care of Lauren for the rest of her life. She needed skilled nursing care, all the different these different things. And they went after my economist because he used a consumer price index that was not Florida specific. It was across the different states. And, you know, on such a minute thing, you know, sometimes that may not be the best cross-examination. And, you know, somebody would say, well, why? Why not if you could get him where he made a mistake in his calculations? Well, the reason was Lonnie Hinton um, was in the Navy and was going to be reassigned possibly to San Diego. So to redirect, I went up there, you know, they made a good point. I mean, they, they used the CPI, if we used, you know, specific, let's say, you know, there's talk about they might move to California. What's the CPI in Southern California? The plan, the plan went up $15 million on redirect. Oh my God. Guess what the jury gave? Yeah, I, I, I was just noticing that. So the, the, I should note on the verdict form, the, uh, the medical, future damages for medical expenses, they gave $54 million, even though your evidence, I think, was 36 or maybe $37 million on the life care plan. Um, yeah. So basically the case turned into, okay, you guys want to play around with that? Yeah. Well, let, Hey, they might move to California. And I, I, I told the jury in closing, I don't know where they're going to live, but you know what? If they do move to California, boy, we got to have enough to pay for it. <laughs> right. And uh, the jury, the jury, I guess, thought they were heading west. Right. Right. Well, yeah. And if you get somebody in the Navy, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, you know, they're going to be transferred at some point. And, and, you know, it's funny because I've had similar experiences. I've never seen what I thought was a good cross of a life care planner um, by a defense. And, you know, and I understand they feel like they've got to do it. But many, I mean, more often than not, it seems like it backfires on them. Um, especially, you know, yeah, especially I mean, it- catastrophic damages. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, if you've got if you've got real, I mean, when you're talking about the, the damages weren't in question here. I mean, the obviously they went the other side of damages that it was so severe she wouldn't live. Um, but you just got to be you got to really walk on eggshells when you're dealing with you know a little girl versus a a completely innocent little girl against a you know company that is you know is flat out callously indifferent in this case. You got to watch a tightrope because if you start, just like Yvonne said, you start mincing words about, well, is our manager, not us? Yeah, jury's going to get that instruction, what they're responsible for. And you start playing around with little things on damages, you got to be really careful. And I'll tell you, I mean, I've tried four life expectancy issues at trial. And you mentioned the three $100 million verdicts. Every one of them, they said my client had a reduced life expectancy. <laughs> right, right. And I, I'll tell you, I mean, I don't, if they did not, I don't know if they're all $100 million verdicts. They, I mean, they certainly were worth it to go through what these clients have gone through. But the other one was a 79-year-old woman who was basically in a coma at trial, and the jury awarded $21 million when the defense was up there saying she would die in 6 to 12 months. Mm. And even though that may be true, how are you capitalizing off that when you put them in that situation? Exactly, exactly. That's what I've always wondered about. Um, and, and I agree with you. I'm not, it, to see how they, they put that up at trial, 
to basically say that, yes, we did something wrong and, and they're not necessarily going to admit that, but, uh, you know, something bad happened and, but yet they're not going to, you know, live a full life. So, you know, don't award these damages. I mean, it's capitalizing off of your bad conduct, which is just a very dangerous game from the defense. Yeah. And, and you can imagine, and you know, this, both of you guys, I mean, every question is, okay. So if, if she doesn't pass away in year 15, who's paying for it? <laughs> right. She, and we go to year 16 because it's what it's, it's one of the two under that scenario. Nobody's paying for it, and that's terrible. Or six to 12 jurors might be thinking over there, well, we don't want to pay for it yeah. because we know the government might be paying for it, and that's all us. Now, obviously, we can't say that, but jurors, jurors know exactly. If, if the wrongdoer is not paying for it, then somebody's paying for it, and it's usually the taxpayer. And it's just a – I mean, I've had questions in trials where – you know, jury hadn't asked a question yet. And in Florida, jurors are allowed to ask questions at the end of examination of a witness. And I've had questions where you take them up sidebar. The first question to a defense life expectancy expert is, who made you God? <laughs> right. And I always say to the judge, judge, I should have asked that question. Can you please ask it to the, <laughs> to the witness? And the judge will ask, no, I don't think so. <laughs> right, right. But you know, that's, that that that's always the danger. You just you know, it, it's a. But I I had in a case the other day, and I said, "Well, good good luck with that, guys." You know. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you mentioned the questions by the jury, and that is something. Uh, I mean, every once in a while, you'll have a judge up here in in Georgia that that might do it if both sides agree, but it's it's not the norm. Um, but I know that that is the uh, the standard in Florida, and I I read your closing, and I thought you know you just did a great job of incorporating in the questions that the jury was asking and how that supported your case. And, and, uh, and a number of those questions, like for instance, um, you know, asking every single witness, whether or not uh, the Hintons had ever been told about the fact that the gate was broken or, um, you know, asking every question, uh, you know, asking every uh, witness, whether or not the pictures of the gate, did the gate appear to be in working order, uh, which, you know, is almost, you know, the, I mean, you, you got to love it when juries are asking those questions uh, because you can tell they're uh, at least somebody's is leaning your way. Um, and then, uh, and then incorporating that into your closing argument, um, I, I thought you did just a, a great job of, of incorporating a number of questions from the jury uh, into the closing argument and sort of to bring the point home. Well, thank you. I, I'm a, you know, I've learned everything I've, I've learned from my mentors, which obviously include my dad, who, who we tried this case together, my uh, partner, Bob Parks, for a long time. And then also my when I left the public defender's office, I, I uh, trained under Don Russo, who's a plaintiff's medical malpractice lawyer. Nobody, nobody has prepared witnesses or taught me more preparation than Don did. And, and one thing that my dad you know, really always taught me was about empowering jur jurors, you know, and, and they're just, they're so powerful. And it's such a, it's such an amazing system when you really think about, you know, six to 12 strangers come in there um, and on a Monday and they, they get picked and they're there for two weeks or however long it is. And they get to make such a profound decision, you know, in, in the Hinton case, regard to Lauren's future. And you mentioned that before, Steve, but you know, you think about it. I mean, we're here on May 14th, 2019. I'll bet you no juror has forgot about this at all. I mean, I bet you every one of those, one thing I always say is I call them the hint and jury in closing, or I call them the, 
Henderson, you know, whoever my client is, because that's who they are. That's right. who brought the case. That's the style of the case. And that's who they are. And that's who they will be forever. And they're, I just believe in empowering them because I, I believe in this system so much. And I'm, I'm a member of the International Academy of Trial Lawyers. And we sometimes I get some debates in debates with my Canadian brethren or, you know, our barristers over the pond. And when they just talk about how we can let jurors decide these matters and civil cases. And I'm like, well, that's exactly who should. And it's just an amazing process. And, and uh, I just loved it. I love to see like in the middle of trial, wow, Mrs. Jones is hanging out with Mr. Griffin. You guys see that at lunch? <laughs> Who would have thought those two, you know, and obviously we look at it because we want to know and we get scared. You know, oh no, those three are forming the, the block we don't want. But it's just a great process. And, and as much as we're talking about this case several years later, I guarantee you that those jurors still do. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about the fact that we are almost, this this event, this tragic event happened on May 15, 2001. I mean, we're almost exactly... Uh, 18 years uh, to the day later uh, doing this interview. So, uh, um, yeah, it uh, is um, just, just on that point about serving on a jury, I especially feel like I, I never, I've never been called for jury duty <laughs> ever. I've been registered to Have vote. Have you registered to vote? Yes. <laughs> I've never even been called, but you know, it's very unlikely that, I mean, who knows what will happen, but I'm, I'm not going to be a lot of people's first pick to be on a, on a jury. And so when I have, you know, non-lawyer friends or family members who are complaining about jury duty, I'm like, don't complain and like, take it seriously. Like this is, this is, you need to show up. You would be a good juror and you need to, don't, don't be looking for excuses to get out of it. You should be trying to do it and get, get a glimpse into how our system works and how important it is. Um, but seeing it work, you know, either in a case that you're trying or if you're lucky to, to sit on and lucky enough to sit on a jury, I agree. It's just, I don't know. I just think it's so important and it's so cool. And it's so pleasantly surprising how once you get a jury in the box, how they really do, even though, even if they've got these bad attitudes sitting there during Vardyar, once they're in the box, they just sort of change and hopefully or take it really seriously. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's the greatest system in the world. And, and it, you know, and it, it just, you know, and, and obviously the tort reformers of the world don't like it because it puts people, what it really does at the end of the day is it, is it puts people on a level playing field and fields. And the bottom line is you're judged by your peers. And that's the whole point of it is that no, you might be judged by a neurosurgeon. You might be judged by a grave digger. You might be judged by a rocket scientist, but the beauty is you can be judged by a group a group of diverse backgrounds of your community. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I just tried a case in federal court and I kept getting into debates and I'll say debates, not arguments with the federal <laughs> judge about giving me time in Vaudeir. And, you know, they, they don't give us time down here in the Southern district too much in, in Florida. And some judges do. And, uh, it's funny. She gave me an hour for closing or gave me really whatever I wanted. I said, well, can I, I only need a half hour. Can I have at least that half hour for my next jury selection in front of you? <laughs> and so at the end, at the end, you know, the case is like, why are you, you know, so you just, you know, why do you feel that it said, judge, it's what it's all about. I mean, it's not only about finding out the fair jurors in your case and deselecting, but it's about the group dynamics. And to me, that's the, I think we can some degree, if you've done it long enough, you try everything, you've got a good shot at identifying jurors, but the thing you'll never figure out, 
is how they react to each other. And that and that's the beauty of it to me, just the group dynamics. And that's why I love focus groups and mock trials so much. It scares me. I, can't, I, I mean, I, I look through that one-way mirror and I say, man, I should have been a truck driver. What am I doing? This is insane. But at the end of the day, it's what it's all about. Well, that's definitely how you learn. I mean, sometimes listen to focus groups and talk about you. You know, it, it's not, not always the most fun thing to do, but you definitely learn if you, uh, if, if you really listen. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about the, the questions that come from the jury at the beginning of the case, uh, you know, during opening or any other time, do you encourage the jurors to ask questions or how do you, how do you address that with them? Or is that just left to the judge? Yeah, the, the way it is in Florida, ironically, through a tort reform statute back in 1999, they basically said the judge has to instruct them. Then it changed to uh, the, the judge doesn't have to instruct them. Uh, but the jurors had the right, not after opening or closing, but uh, after examination of each witness. Some judges tell them, but then other jurors, I mean, they'll just, hey, I got a question, you know, and they have to wait and everything along those lines. So once, you, you know, so you can't really encourage them, uh, but it's it's funny. Once the ball gets rolling, watch out. Right. Because then it's all of a sudden every juror, and I, that, you know, one of the cases, it was a suction entrapment case. It was, it was, it was crazy because it was a very technical, a lot of prior incidents, some explosive evidence, not a single question from that jury until the defense doctor got up there and said that Lorenzo Peterson would die early. And uh, then all of a sudden those questions we were talking about, why are you God? Would you put your son in a nursing home? How, how, how much did they pay you to do this? You know, and all of a sudden, I mean, you're talking about a stoic jury for that first two weeks at trial. And after that examination, you know, obviously I felt pretty good about the case. <laughs> Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great <laughs> lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. <laughs> uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Well, so uh, one of the things I noticed in this case is the, um, there were a number of, uh, of witnesses uh, in the case who all, um, I, I guess, you know, testified about what happened that day. They were all there at the barbecue, but then, um, you know, testified about an earlier event that had happened with, a, with another young girl who had uh, gotten into the pool area alone and, and was rescued by the same neighbor that pulled, um, that pulled your client from the pool. 
but that you use the, all of these different uh, uh, witnesses to basically talk, talk about, you know, whether or not they had knowledge of, of, you know, the gate being broken, how long it had been broken, and, and whether or not they had told the um, uh, management uh, about it. Um, and, you know, talk about how you were able to, you know, one, find these witnesses, because it's always important to find them, but then to get them all to cooperate, come talk, to, talk about it, and how the jury, uh, how the jury took that. Yeah, I mean, I, I um, as I mentioned earlier, we do a lot of, obviously, unfortunately, we still do a lot of drownings. It, it, you know, I'm hoping to never have to look across the family again in my conference room table one day that we can somehow prevent these from occurring. Um, but we do a lot of negligent security cases, too. And I, and I do a speech I talk about, which is called attack the premises, because you know, sometimes people always focus on the incident. And they don't, and then it's great. You have to cover the incident. You have to investigate the incident, you know, to the 10th degree. You have to turn over every stone in the world. But you also, in these type cases, premises liability cases, is you've got to, you got to know every person that's out there that lives at that apartment complex has been there. You've got to knock on every single door. You've got to find out who used to live there. You've got to find out prior apartment managers, prior assistant apartment managers maintenance folks to really find out what's the story you know who was noticing this dangerous condition and who talked about it and who did they talk to because you know what happens and so we are huge on investigation we are i mean i'm out there my investigators are out there my investigators aren't some random person i call they know about these type cases they know what it takes um because when you can put someone in front of the jury who, you know, like you talked about, that little girl, her getting in there, that could have been Lauren. And, you know, Steve, you mentioned earlier, you you had your own child get inside a pool gate. And I can't imagine when you're reading through the materials of this case, what's going through your mind. And, right. you know, right. when, when that type of person testifies on a witness stand, it could have been me. They knew about it, and they did nothing. How powerful that is to a jury, that someone took the time I see the fence is broken. I recognize that's dangerous. I've worked all day. It's 530. I'm at home. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to Frank, the apartment manager's door. I'm going to knock on it. I'm going to tell him that's a death trap that needs to be fixed or this is an accident waiting to happen. You know, and when you have those kind of things and you get to put that in front of a jury, you know, as a, as a, as a plaintiff's lawyer, I, I want that jury fired up. Yeah. I also want to say at the end, that I want you to compare that to what Lonnie Hinton, what knowledge did Lonnie Hinton have compared to them when they had two, three, four people come and warn them and give them a direct warning. And so, you know, if you can do that in cases, I think you are, you know, you're really showing that this was preventable, that this is almost an easy call for the jury. We, we when we try negligent security cases, We'll, we'll call prior victims up to that witness stand. You know, I've had cases against big uh, gasoline station operators where there were three prior armed robberies of gas station victims, customers, where a, a gun was placed to their temple. And then our client was shot and killed six months later, and they did nothing in between. So when that client's up there, strike that, when that victim is up there reliving this, but they're alive. And they're looking at a table. I'm next to a widow. She lost her husband. You know, it's not lost in the jury. That could have been Mrs. Jones. 
She had the strength to come in here, and she told him that night, and they did nothing. So obviously, in in the Hinton case, to have you know just a stoic, frozen time example of another child standing at that pool. This could have been them, and you did nothing. Is really powerful evidence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was I thought it was interesting. Um, I, I was curious what the kind of the the full story was was behind it sounded like in your opening at least you had you had referenced um that they had sort of made a decision to wait and fix to sort of properly fix the gate later and then the defense came back in their opening and said that that decision was about cosmetic changes and didn't have anything to do with the safety issue with the gate. Um, and I was curious, you, you know, we don't have transcripts of the whole trial. What kind of, what kind of really, what was really going on? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the bottom line is it's every excuse in the world. You know, what we say in these cases is if you can't fix the gate, you know what you do? You close the pool. Right. I mean, you close the pool. I mean, you, you, you absolutely, you can put padlocks, you know, as much as there was a gap as you saw between the gate and the uh, fence pose, you could just put padlocks and shut down the pool. And then what you do is you, you get a fence installer out there. It's not like they're making money off the pool. This is bad, negligent management, you know, and, and, they, um, and they just didn't do it. And they made up every excuse in the world. And we see that in all different types of cases. And, and what's, what's, sad, what's really sad in this case is, you know, and this is one of the laws we changed in the state of Florida after this case is that the Department of Health in the state of Florida goes out twice a year and certifies pools. They check for the drains. They check the turbidity of the water. They check the pH level. They check if you have a shepherd's hook, which is a rescue hook. They check all these different things. The one thing they don't check is the gate. The city of Hollywood has a code as to the gate, but the city of Hollywood only comes out if somebody calls them. Well, the people who complained didn't know who to call. Right. City of Hollywood, State of Florida, Broward County. They didn't know who to call. And so I always said you know, later on uh, that, gosh, if somebody had cited them, you know, maybe they would have made the proper changes. So we went to the legislature after this. We said, look, just check the gates twice a year. And the legislature would argue with us saying, well, it's too much regulation, different counties and cities have different regulations and finally in 2010 the florida building code required everybody to have the same stuff and we got what we call lauren's law into the books that they checked those gates yeah i wish they checked them every month up in georgia i've had several of these cases up in georgia steve and they you know your your public pools are closed because you actually have seasons right yeah we don't <laughs> we don't have we don't have those right. florida right um but in Georgia, they, to reopen a pool, it has to be certified, and you have to have the gates and everything like that, which is great. But unfortunately, I've still had those cases because they fall into disrepair uh, up there. But you all actually have better laws than we do. And you can imagine the number one leading cause of death for children under five in the state of Florida is accidental drowning. Wow. Is that right? So we, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's number two in the whole country. And if you think about it, how many states do you – now, granted, you get in bodies of water, but you don't have pools. Right. Uh, and so it, it, it's a huge epidemic and, um, you know, we, we, it really should be looked at more broadly uh, for all the different reasons. 
Um, yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you, was there any evidence, and I mean, I understand there'd be an argument of a subsequent remedial measure, but was there any evidence that after what happened to Lauren that they went back and fixed the gate? Yeah, they definitely did, and it was a subsequent remedial measure. They they never claimed that they couldn't do it because of finances or they couldn't do it because they didn't control it. So all our exceptions and our our uh, subsequent remedial measure in the evidence code were, were not met, like you know, like it is around the country. Right. Um, yeah. So that we we but they they of course fixed it right right away afterward. And and the, you had evidence, or at least I saw you argue in the closing argument that the um that it would only cost fifty dollars to fix the the gate because they had been sort of making the point that they had gone around fixing different apartments, done these big you know repairs, even an eight thousand dollar plumbing fix, and and you sort of came back and said, well, yeah, so why not just fix the gate for fifty bucks? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, I mean, truth be known about this gate. I mean, they didn't have, it was so improper in so many different ways. It wasn't self-closing and self-latching. Um, it, it didn't have the latch on the inside that you're supposed to uh, all these different, different problems have violated every standard. You know, what we typically talk about most of your <clears throat> listeners would probably have heard of the magna latch. And that's basically that latch that you press on the top, it releases it and it opens, you know, and it opens right. outward, you know, mm-hmm. the, I mean, these things have been tested so much because, you know, you have to reach a certain height over 54 inches to engage it. You have to open it up. And the reason that why that is, is a toddler is really probably not going to pull, they'll push. So you don't ever want it to be pushed right. and you want it to self close and self latch so that the only way a gate like this could be violated if somebody puts a chair, if somebody manipulates it on purpose, usually an adult, those type of things. So these these standards have been thought out, you know, tested, and and they're not foolproof by any means. I mean, you could you could have somebody, man, I'm sick of opening that, I'm sick of dealing, I'm just going to put a chair out there. But let me tell you, I mean, if if somebody manipulated that with a chair and they had a proper gate, it's a, it's a different type of case. Right. Of uh, it's a, you know you, you know. The defense goes up there and goes, look, I mean, we had the perfect gate, what's recommended by the code, but it, but this darn, you know, and, and by the way, here's our surveillance, Mr. Jones in apartment 203, he propped it open. Well, who's that on? You know, it's going to be tough for me to argue you should be 24-hour monitoring your pool if that only happened for 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, but they didn't have any of that, you know. One argument that I saw you made in closing that I should mention is when they made these arguments about that the reason why the pool gate was getting broken so much was because of basically all the tenants and and how they had some bad tenants that were basically vandalizing the gate. And uh, and I, I thought the point you made uh, was great, which was, well, you know, they, they didn't kick anybody, any of these tenants out. They didn't stop taking their checks. You know, they took those checks right to the bank. Um, so, it, you know, if these tenants were so bad, uh, why didn't they do anything about it? Uh, which I just thought was a great point. Yeah, and of course they had no records showing anybody was a problem. You know, and granted this was you know 2001, so it's a while ago. Nowadays, you know, obviously the argument would be, wow, what'd your surveillance camera show? And if you know the guy in 303 was that bad of a guy, I'm sure you kicked him out. I'm sure you did this because you checked your tapes. But you know, uh, you know, and, and and that's you know one of the big problems as I've learned in drowning cases, negligent security cases. Is really what I've become is a is a real estate lawyer in some respect, <laughs> and you know the the bottom line is is that people buy commercial properties to flip them, 
that's why they buy them. They buy them for the they buy them for the cash because they get rental income. So you can either pay your mortgage off with it or you can pocket some of it. And they're waiting for the time to sell. And the the problem there's nothing wrong with any of that. The problem is to maintain them properly costs money, not a lot, but costs money. And you need to do more than the minimum. You know, we've heard so many jurors say and monitors say, "What's great, it wasn't a code violation. That's the minimum." What right, are you doing right. to keep people safe? You know, and a lot of times I'll see lawyers turn down cases that's not a code violation. This is probably one of the only cases that I've had a code violation. Right. Um, you know, and they still argued in this case, as you saw, well, nobody told us, nobody cited us. Well, yeah, but it's still a code violation. Uh, but you don't need a code violation. You know, negligence is negligence. And, you know, there's standards of care for whether it be pools, whether it be security, whether it be fire, that that reasonable property owners need to adhere to. And uh, and they don't because they want it. They just want to do the bare minimum. They want to sell that property in a, in a, in a nice market. And that's, that's really what we've learned about you know, a lot of these cases against big commercial property owners. Yeah. You know, that argument about the, uh, about the codes. I mean, we, we see that we, we do a lot of auto product cases and uh, we see that a lot um, where the, you know, auto manufacturer always comes in and one of their first arguments is that, you know, we met or exceeded every, you know, uh, federal motor vehicle safety standard. And, uh, you know, and, and you always have to have some, you know, come, explain to the jury look yes they couldn't they wouldn't be able to sell the car if they didn't do that that is the bare minimum to put that car on the road and uh but that doesn't mean that the car is safe or doesn't have problems and that you know and that's actually written right into the statute um so we you know you see that in every type of case and if you only waited for cases where there's a specific code violation you'd probably not have very many cases um no and, and it's a great point and that that's another you know that's something that is so important to cover in jury selection of course that brings you back to federal court right yeah, exactly. so, but uh i hope no federal uh, federal judges are listening or if they do i hope they <laughs> would allow us some more jury selection please yeah we, and we're asking in the most respectful way uh that we exactly <laughs> Um, what, one, of, one of the uh, defenses I did want to talk about a little bit is because they, the defense really tried to play up the fact that this was a family-owned business. And, and I also saw that, so this event happened in May of 2001, and it looks like they had just bought the property in November of 2000. And they sort of made the point of, well, look, we just bought this property, and nobody told us that there was anything wrong with the gate. Um, and, and then I, I guess, you know, so, and there must have been some if, effectiveness to that argument because as I mentioned early in the, in the podcast, um, the, the jury didn't award punitive damages. Is that right? Yeah, they did it. They did not. And we didn't, we didn't make a huge push for it. Uh, although we did ask the, we, we did amend our complaint. You have to afford a amend your complaint. The judge said we had evidence. So we, we put it in there, but, but they didn't. So, which I kind of like because it showed to the appellate court, this isn't punitive because yeah. they would have done that. So if it was just a compensatory verdict form, maybe the appellate court would have had a pretty good argument to say, well, gosh, it's a hundred million. You know, they probably punished almost to a remitter. So, right. but yeah, you know, you deal with, I mean, how many times do we deal with somebody on the other side saying, well, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, this is a family business, you know, that's one argument on that side. Uh, I think, you know, I think jurors are just so intelligent that they, they're going to sit there and they're going to see, you know, these lawyers working hard. 
They know investigators are out there. They see experts. They obviously hear what the experts are paid. You know, jurors understand these folks aren't asking for all this money for this family to pay. You know, I think jurors understand that there's insurance. We obviously aren't allowed to talk about that. Um, and so I think that's not that big of a deal most of the time. The the short ownership, you know, if you had a problem that was more, you know, latent, that wasn't more obvious, that obviously can be a problem a lot of the times. Here we had testimony, as you know, that this broken gate was going on for six months. And so, therefore, they owned it that entire time. And even if they the problem existed before, which it really did, that gate was a code violation before they bought it. They, they obviously did due diligence. They did an inspection. None of that came up. Um, they didn't really use the argument that, hey, you know, we bought the property and it passed an inspection, so therefore we're okay. And the reason they couldn't is because it just flat out wasn't okay. They couldn't get an expert to say that or anything. Right. And you said you got to talk to the jury afterwards. Did you uh, talk to them about the fact that they, uh, they, they didn't find for punitive damages and, and what their reasoning was behind that? And, and I agree with you because I've you know, been in both sides of the cases where they've given a significant award on punitives and then ones where they didn't. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, at the end of the day, you get kind of thankful when they, they don't, because when you go up to the court of appeals, you can't, there's no argument that the jury was inflamed because if they were inflamed, they would have given some, you know, outrageous punitive damages award, which they didn't. So, um, um, but, uh, but what, what did the jury have to say about the decision not to award uh, punitive damages? It was interesting. We, 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 we're not allowed to contact jurors. They have to contact us. And, you know, the next day, the four person of the, the uh, verdict called, she was a Broward County school bus driver. Uh, and she called and, uh, you know, she just, you know, she, she actually wanted to explain why they put 1% on the dad because they almost felt like they didn't want the dad feeling guilty. Right. And so, she, yeah, which was very interesting. And she, she said, we didn't really think he did anything wrong, but you know, we, we had the other juror wanted 50%. So it was a bit of a negotiation. So I joked, why? Well, I, I wish I'd negotiated like you guys do. It did a really good job. <laughs> right. And, uh, that, that was one, but she also said, you know, it was really kind of neat. She said, we wanted to send a little bit of a message to parents that you've got it. You know, you, you really just have to be on the lookout, keep your head on a swivel. And, uh, but, but it, it really sounded like they, they weren't angry at the defendants. They, they, the defendants did wrong, but they, they felt like those were the damages. And, you know, it's one of those cases that I think we, there's no question the defendant was wrong, but it wasn't, you know, General Motors who did a report as to how much money they would save. It wasn't that type of case. They certainly were wrong. And she was catastrophically injured. And her damages, in my view, could support $100 million every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Um, so I think it was one of those that they just got it right, that they didn't overreact. And I don't think I really asked her. You know, hey, why didn't you give me punitives too? I think I right. was just, <laughs> I was satisfied. You're so yeah, so pretty happy with the verdict, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, well, let's talk about the damages. I mean, we haven't really talked about how uh, Lauren was affected by this, and I, I I did notice in the opening 
that, um, you know, you, you only brought Lauren in for a minute uh, to meet the jury so that they could uh, see her. And then, um, and then when she left, the parents left as, uh, uh, as well. And you explained to the jury that the reason why you had the parents step out of the room as because you wanted to talk frankly about, you know, how this was going to affect her. So, so talk a little bit about the, the damages to Lauren and then how you presented those to the, uh, to the jury. Well, you, you know, I mean, first and foremost, they're just so profound. I mean, you know, you, you have someone that, you know, cannot do anything on their own. I mean, can't eat. She's fed by a G-tube. Um, she, she can't walk. She can't talk. So all that is is stuff that, you know, you you have to explain as a lawyer. But but in these type of cases, what I would the life expectancy issue is always coming. And right. you know, as much as you and I have talked about that it's something we don't understand the defense does, they're gonna find an expert, they're gonna have compelling literature, and you better be ready because you know, if you're not and they sell it to a jury, you, you really haven't done your job, in my view, as a, as a plaintiff's lawyer because, you know, your client's going to need all that money. So what, what happened in this case was, it happens in all these cases, that you almost have to fight for your client for their improvement. You know, it was, you know, usually maybe in a, in a soft tissue case, some type of case, the defense is saying, oh, my God, your client can do everything. Here I was like, she can roll over on command. She can respond to voluntary directions. And the reason, number one, it was true. She could do that. And she had made these little milestones to the regular person, but they were very big milestones to a neurologist and to different people. And what they were trying to say is that she was in a vegetative state. And the reason they were trying to say that is because the literature supports that her life expectancy would be severely reduced. Right. We didn't believe she was in a vegetative state. Anybody who'd spent enough time with her knew that she was more in what we call minimally conscious state, where she could respond to, uh, you know, directives and those type of things. Now she can't stand up. She can't do these things. So I would be showing therapy tapes with doctors, nurses, um, showing that she had made improvement, that this therapy makes a difference, and that you don't just shove her in a room and not do anything for her. And, you know, and that, that because she was in a mentally conscious state, because she's doing these type of things, if she got optimal medical care, um, she could live a normal life expectancy. And, you know, and, and they were, as opposed to, they would, you know, get this doctor up saying, well, look, this, this uh, article says X, and therefore she's only going to live, you know, six to 10 years, and therefore you don't have to give her, you know, a... Um, an LPN, a licensed practical nurse, just give her a CNA, just give her this lower medical care. And, you know, the drastic difference between 36 million and their life care plan, which may have been four to 6 million or whatever it was, you know, it's a, it's a big battle in these cases. And, you know, the way I come back at them on that is, you know, so you're making it a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, you basically mm -hmm. are saying, put her in a nursing home, you know, take her away from her parents, you know, and, and put her with 80 and 90 year old patients, which has a drastic effect on a younger patient. And, and you're just self-fulfilling your prophecy of give her less care and she will die earlier. And uh, it's really been interesting as you 
you go on in the years, because I talk to Lori all the time. Lori is a tremendous advocate for, uh, for us, you know, making better laws against drowning. And, uh, let me tell you, every little milestone that Lauren makes, and she's not, you know, she's not walking, but her reactions are better and better as the years go by. And, um, but you can only hear that from the person who's with her every day. You know, if I go see her tomorrow, I've obviously seen Lauren many times over the years, even though she's in Atlanta, whenever I've got kids in Atlanta, I'll I'll pop over there to see her. I can't tell the, the milestones as much as maybe somebody else can, you know, that's with her all the time. So I think those are things are incredibly important that you can't take the damages in this type of case lightly. And a lot of plaintiff's lawyers do. They're just like, oh, I've got a severe brain damage case. What does that mean? And what do you understand what's coming in the fight? Because right. you better be ready for it. Right. Right. Um, no. And, and again, I, I, I should point out that the, um, the, the verdict that, you know, I've, already said was over a hundred million dollars, but a significant portion of that was for both future medical care and future uh, pain and suffering. And so obviously the jury didn't buy the argument of the defense that, that she was going to have a shortened life expectancy and, and uh, when they bring in these, these people, but in, instead awarded her uh, a full value. And, uh, and it's just uh, tremendous work that you, that you did in this case, Michael. Oh, thank you so much. They were, uh, you know, and it is really a validation to the family too. I mean, you know, to have a jury say you can have a reduced life. I mean, what does that say to a parent, you right. know, who, who is fighting? I mean, just every little thing she fights for, for, for Lauren is, is just tremendous. So for them to say, Hey, we believe in you and we're going to give you all the tools. And, you know, she's coming up on her 21st birthday. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so when you presented the damages, I mean, since you had the, the parents leave the courtroom during the, your opening, were they also out of the courtroom when you talked about damages or had uh, some of the doctors testify and, and some of the, the life care planner and people like yeah, that? Yeah, you know, we, we mixed it up. You know, I mean, we, we, um, some of the more emotional stuff. I wanted them there when their, life, when their defense doctor came up. Uh, their defense doctor, ironically, had testified in deposition in a case that I had with the same exact injury and said someone would have a normal life expectancy. So you can imagine that might've gotten a little fiery. Yeah, really. (laughs) Uh, And he was retained. I want to say three weeks, four weeks before his deposition, maybe six weeks before trial been paid $16,000. So, you know, just, just really not, smart stuff on the defense side or the doctor side. Ironically, the case he testified in deposition in a drowning case saying my child would have a normal life expectancy, that case had not been tried and was then tried six months later. So you, you might, you might uh, imagine I didn't call him live at that trial. I might have read right. his deposition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we weren't on talking terms after this. After this case. Wow. I, I, can, I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, well, listen, uh, Michael, this, this has been just a great discussion. And, and obviously, as we've already said, just uh, just tremendous work by you and your team on behalf of uh, the Hinton family and, and Lauren Hinton specifically. Um, the name of this case is Hinton versus 2331 Adams Street Corporation. And our guest has been Michael Haggard. 
at, who is the managing partner at the Haggard Law Firm. You can look him at, up at haggardlawfirm.com. And he is, uh, uh, lives and works down in, uh, in the Miami area and in Coral Gables. And, uh, and Michael, we've uh, uh, just been so happy to have you on as a guest. And thank you for, uh, for coming on and talking to us about this. Uh, thank you so much. And, and you know, it's, it was great reliving this case. And, you know, most importantly, you know, talk about how we can really kind of put a curb on uh, child drowning. Because it's still, as we sit here this many years later, it's still an epidemic in our country. And I appreciate you all bringing the information out there to everybody about it. Well, yeah, and it's, I mean, I, I did not realize that it was the, the number one cause of child death in, in Florida and then the number two across the, the U.S. I mean, but it is, I mean, it's cases like this that, that, that um, you know, bring it to the forefront and hopefully make change for the future. And, um, and I, I think you, you must be so pleased to get a, a, a law that you refer to as Lauren's Law uh, about, uh, uh, you know, uh, fences and gates down in, uh, down in Florida. That's just, uh, again, fantastic work and, and more than just the trial itself, but actually something that will create change for and make things better for, for everybody else. Well, thank you. That's what it's all about. I mean, I think, I think all our cases can do that. And, and, um, you know, I always joke, I said one day we, we could make it so safe. We put ourselves out of business. We'll all find something else to do. So, yeah, Hopefully exactly. we get there one That's day. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Maybe maybe then I'll get to sit on a jury. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there aren't any more <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Michael. This has been this has been great. Thank you, guys. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.